All right. Well, we, last week we talked about the first part of chapter 4, and we have, have seen in the book of Hebrews that the theme is basically that Jesus is better. He's better than anything that we might want to replace him with. He's better than any sort of false ideas or wrong ideas or compromised ideas that we would have about God. That Jesus is better than any kind of religious system that we might adhere to. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's the one that we follow. And if you remember, the whole context of the book of Hebrews is these Hebrew Christians, these Jewish Christians who are experiencing serious persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And they're tempted because of that persecution to go back, to go back to the Jewish religion, to go back to first century Judaism. And, and, and to do so would mean to turn their back on Jesus. To do so would mean to, at best, try to be secret Christians, which never works. And so they're in a place where the author is writing to them. We don't know for sure who the author is, but he's writing to them to encourage them that, listen, we know you're tempted to go back, but Jesus is better. Stay with Jesus. And so last week in the first part of chapter 4, we talked about this idea that Jesus provides the better rest. And really, that's a, we want to continue with that theme, continue with that idea that Jesus provides a better rest. And just as way of review, remember, last week we talked about, we, we identified what that rest is. And when, when the Bible speaks of this rest, the author specifically of Hebrews is talking about a message that we need to receive, that God's given us a promise. He's given us good news, a promise of a good future, and He calls us to believe that message. It's not enough to hear it and understand it. He wants us to trust Him for it. But it's also a work that's already been finished. Jesus has died for all of our sins, past, present, future. The, the penalty for sin has already been paid for. Therefore, we don't have a, a horrible expectation in our lives. We have a good expectation. He's already paid the price. And the power of sin is broken. We don't have to be slaves to our sin anymore, including the sin of compromise or the sin of backsliding, which is what they're wanting to do. God's broken that power. And one day, as Job prayed, we're going to be free from the presence of sin. We're going to live in a world where righteousness reigns. It's going to be amazing. All this because of the rest He provides. It's a work He's finished. But it's also an eternal reality that we can experience right now. God wants us to enter into His rest. As we talked about last week, Jesus says, Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. He wants us to experience the Sabbath, not just as one day in seven, but the reality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how we relate to God through Jesus on a daily basis. We talked about, too, last week, this idea that we need to realize how much we need that. It sounds appealing, doesn't it? But sometimes we think, yeah, rest is good, but you know what? Reality is hard, and I'm just going to have to push through. We don't see how much we need God's rest. Therefore, what does God do? He gives us His Word to expose our radical need for the rest that only He can provide. So now we get into the end of this chapter, in chapter 4, and really we're going to shift gears and talk about the practical way that we experience rest. And in a nutshell, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about how important prayer is. And I have to say, this is one of the easiest texts to understand. It's laying a great foundation for a huge part of the book of Hebrews. But it's one of the hardest texts to study and prepare because it really exposes, at least in my life, my lack of prayer. 
And I don't mean the fact that I, I never pray. I say my prayers. I'm pretty good about making sure I pray in the morning. I try to read my Bible every day and be prayerful in my reading. I pray every time someone asks for prayer. I, I try to be really careful if I say to somebody on a text or an email, I'll pray for you to stop and pray right then so I don't forget. So I say my prayers, but what he's talking about here is more than just saying prayers. He's talking about entering into this rest, this finished, secure, sustaining relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To have a prayer life that looks like that. To have a prayer life that feels like that, where you're really experiencing God's rest. This is why the author of Hebrews is writing these things. Now, some of the stuff we're going to talk about is stuff that I, I do say a lot, because I see this is so foundational to our understanding. The, the practical realities of what Jesus has done for us, I say these things a lot. And so you might be tempted today to kind of tune out from some of this stuff. Like, oh yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that. But I want you to think about these things Freshly, I want you to think about these truths that we talk about and, and ask yourself, am I believing this when I come before God to pray? When I pray to somebody, when I pray for somebody, praying to God hopefully, when I pray for somebody, do I believe these things? Do I recognize these truths? Am I responding to these truths? And so we pick it up in verse 14, and this, I'm going to give you three basic things. And the first thing I want you to understand is, is that Jesus is the one who provides our access. He's the reason why we can approach God in the first place. The author writes, seeing then that we have a great high priest. And what he's doing here in verse 14 is actually introducing a section that goes from here all the way to chapter 10, verse 18. Really, you could say that whole section is about Jesus being a better high priest. But then it would be like part one, part two, part 37, so I'll have to think of more creative titles. But that's the main point. Jesus is our great high priest. So we'll unpack that a lot as we move on. But he says, since we have this great high priest, and notice what he says, who has passed through the heavens? And what he means by this phrase is not that Jesus was just kind of passing by like, oh, I was on the bus, and I decided to kind of get out, walk around heaven, and get back on the bus and come back to earth. That's not what the idea is. He's not just passing through. It's the idea that he has full and unhindered access before God himself. Before the creator of the universe, before God his Father, he has full and permanent access. Now this is important because this is, in a sense, speaking of Jesus as, uh, as, as a real man. Now, we've talked a lot, haven't we? We've seen in Hebrews how the author of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is God the Son. It's one of the clearest parts of Scripture to talk about the deity of Christ. And he is, Jesus clearly is deity. He is God the Son, equal to the Father. But he's also, Jesus is also the man. He is the last Adam. He is this perfect, he is as human as you or I are. And in this great mystery, he retains, he, he in a very real sense, added humanity to his deity. And he retains that humanity. And this is important because it's his retention of that humanity. It's the fact that Jesus is both God and man and has this access, unhindered access to God, that guarantees that we have this unhindered access to God. It's, it's only because he's man that we have that. If Jesus was just 
God the Son and came as some sort of phantom, there's no way we would know if we have access, at least for sure, not on this side of heaven. And it also brings into question, could He actually have atoned for our sins? Could He have actually been a good enough sacrifice? That's something the author of Hebrews will pack, unpack over the next several weeks. But also, if He was only, listen, if He was only, if he was only God, or if He was only man, He needs to be both. It's important that we recognize that He is both. His humanity, listen, His sacrifice, the fact that He is this perfect man who's ascended, been accepted by the Father. Remember, the disciples saw Him ascend into heaven, Acts chapter 1. Because He's ascended and been accepted by the Father, that means, listen, having passed through, having that unhindered access means that we, if we are united with Him, have the same access. I want you to think about this for a second. Because Jesus is our high priest, we have the same access to the Father that He has always enjoyed for eternity. Think about that for a second. What God the Son has always enjoyed with God the Father what the Godhead has always experienced, always enjoyed, we now have access to because Jesus became our high priest. I want you to think about this for a second. So, I just lost their names. What are the prince's names? Harry and what's the other guy? William. Why did I forget his name? Because I'm American, I guess, yeah. So Prince William, our future king, I'll be a British citizen by then, I think, so he'll be my king as well. So Prince, <laughs> Prince William, I, I would be willing to bet, has pretty much unfettered access to the queen. She's grandmother, after all, or I don't know what, the, what he calls her, grandmama or whatever. Uh, he, she, he, gets to, he, he, he gets to be in her presence. He eats with her. He's probably even sassed Now The queen seems to be a believer, so maybe she disciplined him as well. I don't know. But she, he, he has a, a relationship that none of us would dare think about. If, if you meet the queen, if you have the great privilege, I, think, I know there's someone here who's met the queen. I don't want to say who it is because they'll get embarrassed, but I know there's at least one person here who's met the queen. If you met the queen, you would not approach the queen with the same sort of casualness or unhinderedness as William would. You wouldn't. And she's just the queen, no offense to Her Majesty. She's just a person. She's just only a human. God the Father, in sending God the Son to become a man, the perfect man, has provided in him a way that we can have the same kind of unhindered access. There's nothing, if we are united with Christ, there is nothing that keeps us from approaching God except our own unbelief. Nothing. And what he's wanting to say here, the author's wanting to say is, listen, he's passed through the heavenlies. In fact, listen to this. Listen to what Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 34 says. Okay, I'm going to read from the NLT because I like the way it translates it. Okay, listen. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us 
and He is sitting in a place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. We're going to read later on in Hebrews chapter 10, where it will say, let us draw near, let us draw near to God with a true heart, notice, in full assurance of faith. Not hesitating at all. Why? How? Because Jesus is already there. If we are in Christ, listen, not only does the Bible say we have this position of being seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but also, listen, we have this privilege of approaching God the Father as our Father. Do you guys realize that's why it's so amazing that when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray, he said, pray our Father? In other words, he's your Father and my Father. We're on the same plane here. That's amazing. Now, I want you to understand this, okay? Because when it says that he's at God's right hand pleading for us, don't get this picture of the father going, oh, I just want to just waste that kid. Oh, that's such a horrible, disobedient little brat. Jesus going, please, Father, Daddy, don't kill him, don't kill him. And he's going, okay, fine, because of you, I won't kill him. Don't think that way. Because when we think about God, listen, when we think about our three-in-one God, there is no difference in desire or passion or commitment or will between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They are one. God is just as pleased to save you as Jesus is. So he's not pleading by his words as much as he's pleading with his wounds. The fact that he's this finished sacrifice. The fact that his very presence, that God looks at us through his dear son Christ and looks at us with that same privilege, that same love. We've been enveloped in that. We've been entered into that. And listen, not because God's blind. It's not because God doesn't see John Brown anymore and he only sees Jesus. It's because God sees me as one who will be made like Jesus because of what Jesus has done, because of his high priestly work. I have access to God that way. You have access to God that way. In fact, listen, not only can we, we can know that we can enter that presence because, God, because Jesus remains in that presence, but also, listen, we can know the kind of God whose presence we're entering because of Jesus. That's why he says, listen, who passed through the heavens, and, and, and the author mentions him as Jesus, the Son of God. The Son of God. How do we know that, that our God is a Father, a compassionate Father, someone who would care for his children much more than we, any of us would naturally. How do we know? Because Jesus came as the Son. Do you understand? It's knowing that Jesus came revealing himself as the perfect Son, as the only begotten Son, that we can know that our God is not just a Father, but he's a good Father who gives good gifts to his children. We know that God is good because of what we see in Jesus. We not only have unhindered access, but we have no reason to doubt his goodness because we can see Jesus the Son and go, man, if the Son is like this, the Father must be also. He says, therefore, because this is a fact, he says, let us hold fast our confession. Let's hold fast our confession. Now, what he's talking about here, this idea of confession, we're going to talk about the need for confession and, or the, the, the place of confession in our prayer life and in, towards the end, but just know that the word confess 
or confession, it comes from this idea of saying the same thing as somebody else. So to confess means to say the same thing as. So like when, when Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. What he means by that is he says, if you say the same thing about me that I say about me before men, then I'll say the same thing about you before the Father that I see you say. In other words, I'll say, yep, yeah, they believe in me. I say they believe in me. It's saying the same thing as. So like we'll, we'll talk about later on in 1, in 1 John, to confess our sins is to say the same thing about our sins that God says. So when he says, let's hold, back, hold fast to our confession, he's saying, okay, let's hold fast to what we actually believe. Let's say the same thing about God, the same thing about Jesus, the same thing about the access that we have through him that he says. Let's say it, let's believe it, let's practice it. This is what prayer is. Prayer is us saying to God what he's already said to us. Prayer is us pouring out our hearts to God uh, as, as he has revealed himself to be. God, I believe you are the same as you've revealed yourself to be. That's where prayer starts. This is why the Bible will say later on in Hebrews 11, that without faith it's impossible to please God, for he believes must believe that God is. That doesn't just mean that he exists, but that he is as he's revealed himself to be. You can believe that there's a God and that he's a big jerk in the sky. That he wants to crush you, that he can't stand aside of you. You're not going to approach that God. Or you can believe that God's some kind of saccharine, sweet grandfather who never disciplines you, never tells you when you're wrong, always just lets you get away with murder. And that God doesn't exist. He's not going to hear your prayers. No, we come to God as he's revealed himself to be. So holding on to our confession means doing that. We're holding on to this. And this is what our prayers are like. This should model our prayers. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Paul writes this. He says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and I would say the same thing about the Lord he said about himself, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you guys see the parallel between the heart and the mouth? Your heart and your mouth have to agree. In your heart of hearts, that is in your thinking, in your affections, you have to go, yes, Jesus is God. He is how we know what God is like. He is who we need to trust. You have to believe that in your heart. You can't fake it. It's not like you can just say the words and some magical thing happens. But you have to believe it in your heart to the point that you will confess it with your mouth. That it will actually change not only how you speak, but notice, listen, who you speak to. The first act of faith of the believing heart is prayer. Now, I'm not talking about just the formal, what people often call the sinner's prayer. I don't think there's anything wrong with the sinner's prayer. It's not a bad thing to do, but we're not talking about that. This verse is not talking about that. It's not talking about an event of a prayer you prayed. It's talking about a heart that cries out to God, God, you need to save me, and God, I believe you can save me, and God, I believe you will save me. That's what it's talking about. 
And the author of Hebrews is one of these guys to recognize, listen, I know the persecution is difficult. I know that it's really hard to keep trusting Jesus and following Jesus when you're getting beat up and ostracized for it. But guess what? Call upon me. I'm still on the throne. I'm still the same God. I'll still deliver you. And I can imagine that as they've gone through things and as they've, I'm sure at times, succumbed to the backsliding, they've kind of started to say, well, I'm not really sure who Jesus is and I'm not really sure you know, if, I, if I should be this way or maybe some of them got into other kinds of sins. They thought, you know what, this is it. I've blown it. I can't come back to God. I can't approach him again. My only hope is to keep all these religious duties and then maybe somehow things will be okay. And the author of Hebrews is going, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Your access to God is not because of you. It's because of him. It's because of Jesus. This is why, listen, it says, hold fast to our confession. Don't let go. Guys, listen, when you pray, do you pray because you're just so stirred up emotionally and you think, oh, I just want to pray? And let me, let me be clear to you, prayer is about worship. We're going to talk about that toward the end as well. Is it, are you only kind of addressing God because you're feeling it? I'm really feeling it, so I'm going to do it. Do you only pray when you feel it? Or do you pray because you can? <laughs> because the creator of the universe gives you the same access that he's given his beloved son that he would command, cast all your cares on me because I care for you. Have you ever read the Gospels and noticed how much Jesus commands us to pray? I mean, honestly, guys, some of the things that Jesus tells us about prayer challenge my theology. I mean, you see the guys on, on the God channel that I'm always slagging off and always saying these guys are horrible, don't listen to those guys, and I stand by that. But the truth is, the truth is, listen, sometimes in my reaction to their bad theology, I forget there's something important about saying, God, you said ask anything and you'll do it. That we have a father that says, listen, if your fathers are evil but know how to give you good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit? What gives me any right to ask for more of God's power? What gives me any right to ask for, for God's help in my life or God's forgiveness again or God's sustaining power? What gives me any right Jesus does. That's the only reason I have any right. And it's the reason I always have the right to come into his presence. Do you, do you feel the privilege it is to approach the living God? Do you see how, how we take the Lord's name in vain when we, we just throw up cold, unbelieving, heartless prayers? I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm really talking about the fact that we think, oh yeah, I should pray, and we pray motivated by guilt, which is the direct opposite of why we should pray. Well, sure, we should pray when we feel guilty. We should confess. But why would it give us the boldness to think that we'd expect forgiveness from God again? Jesus does. He's the only reason we have access, and he is the reason why we have permanent access to the Father. In fact, he says, look at verse 15. Not only does Jesus provide our access, listen, but Jesus secures the Father's compassion. Verse 15 says, For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
So when the Bible talks about Jesus as, Jesus as a high priest, the fact that he is a man means that he experienced temptation. Now, he's a perfect man, so the kind of temptation he experienced, he doesn't have a sin nature like you and I have a sin nature. So we, are, we don't just sin, we are sinful. Jesus wasn't sinful, but he also did not sin. So his temptation was like, you'd say, Adam's temptation in the Garden of Eden. So a sinless man who still can be tempted into sin, if that makes sense. So his human nature was as much human as Adam, the first Adam's nature was, okay? In that he could be legitimately tempted into sin in the same way. Yet the Bible says, because of that, or, or because of that, that temptation, he has compassion on us. He, he sympathizes with us. Do you know what it means to sympathize? It doesn't just mean like you see a, a, a commercial about Oxfam and go, oh, that's kind of sad. It's bigger than that. It's much more powerful than that. When the Bible uses this term, sympathize, it really means your pain in my heart. Do you, do you realize that Jesus, this Jesus that we sing to, that in whose name we pray, that this Jesus knows how difficult it is to resist sin? And he doesn't look at us and go, what's wrong with you? Get it together. Come on. He doesn't do that. We do that to each other, but he doesn't do that to us. He's sympathetic with our weaknesses. The psalmist said it this way. Again, I'm going to read from the NLT. The psalmist says, The Lord is a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him, for he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. You know, when my kids were learning to walk, I wasn't going, come on, you can do better than that. Because they would just come, because they couldn't talk either at that time. (laughs) No, we were overjoyed that they stumbled and fell. Oh, look at that, they took a step, they took a step. Why? Because we loved our kids, and any growth we saw in them, we celebrated. How much more our Heavenly Father Especially because, listen, Jesus is the one who secures his compassion towards us. Isn't this what we see about Jesus again in the Gospels? Over and over again, it says that he had compassion on the multitudes. He was moved. It literally means that he was, his internal organs moved around. He was like, oh man, these people, they need to hear truth. These people need to experience healing. These people need to be fed. They're tired and they're sick and they're weary and they're confused. They need a shepherd. And out of that compassion, what did he do? He shepherded them. He shepherds us. But not only does he have sympathy about our weaknesses, what does it say? He was tempted in all points, yet without sin. You see, every other high priest before Jesus' time could not say they were without sin. Well, they might be able to sympathize. They might go, yeah, it's hard. I need the atonement the way you need the atonement. But they, they could not say they were without sin. You know what it means that Jesus is without sin? You know what it means that he's sinless? One, it means that his sacrifice is perfect and sufficient for our sinfulness. That's one thing. We'll talk about that in future chapters. But also, listen, it means he has the power to deliver us from sin. Now, we're not going to be free from the presence of sin until we see Jesus face to face. 
but we can learn and grow and take baby steps towards trusting him for the power to turn away from sin. God, I sin on a daily basis. The more I understand what sin is, the more I realize I sin on like an hourly, maybe a minute-by-minute basis. But you know what I'm learning? I'm learning to trust not in my ability to overcome sin, but on him who has overcome sin. That's what John says in his epistle. He says, who, who is he who overcomes? He who has faith in the Son of God. What do we have in faith in? That he has overcome. <laughs> okay, Lord, I can be an overcomer because you are the overcomer. You are without sin. You conquered sin. Therefore, if I follow you by your resources, by your strength, I can learn to overcome sin. Isn't that amazing? Seriously, guys, I know that we all value forgiveness, but do you, aren't you sick and tired of being a slave to your sin, a slave to your doubt, a slave to your sexual appetites, a slave to your selfishness, a slave to your laziness, a slave to your prayerlessness? Aren't you sick of that? Is that going to change because you're going to just beat yourself up and will it to happen? Or is it going to change because Jesus gives you the power to do it? So how do we access that? We pray. We go to him and say, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can. We make it our declaration, as Paul did in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's my declaration. Why? Because it's true. That's the confession we want to hold fast to. We, listen, know we have the Father's compassion. Listen, guys, God is not looking at you. Christian, listen to me. You who are Christians, listen to me. God is not looking at you and going, what is wrong with you? Get it right. He's looking at you and saying, come to me. I'm going to help you get it right. Come to me, I've already made you right. See, this is why we're so hot on these theological terms about justification versus sanctification. Justification means God rendering us innocent. He justifies us. He renders us innocent because we put our faith in Jesus' finished work. Sanctification is God working in us to make us like Jesus. If you don't understand justification, you won't grow in sanctification. If you confuse those two things, if you think, okay, I'll be rendered innocent with God if I keep trying really hard, you'll never make any progress. It's until you recognize, God, the only reason I can even come to you for help is because you've already justified me. And because you've already justified me, I can believe that you will sanctify me. You will set me apart for your purpose. You will make me like Jesus. So I'm going to come to you knowing I've secured your compassion, knowing that you've already conquered sin. I'm going to come to you and seek you for that. Now, so Jesus provides our access. He secures the Father's compassion, but also, listen, he demands our, he commands our obedience, or I'm sorry, our dependence. He commands our dependence. And this is really important because I think sometimes... What's happened in the modern Western church is that we've, we've, we've explained to you, we've preached to you 
what it means to be a Jesus follower as if it's just say this prayer and you're in. Say this prayer, maybe, maybe come to church, maybe serve a bit, maybe tithe, and you're in. And we've kind of said, okay, we de- you, we've, we've told you it's all about Jesus, but we've taught you to depend on your prayer, the, the prayer that you've prayed, or your, your tithing, or your service, or whatever the case might be. But what Jesus calls us to is depend upon him exclusively. That's why Jesus, when he, when he calls disciples, he doesn't say, come follow this. He says, come follow me. When he teaches them the prayer, to pray, he, he's teaching them how to practice their dependence upon him. And this is what the author of Hebrews is trying to reinforce. He says, okay, here's the deal. Because Jesus provides our access, and because uh, he secures the Father's compassion, he says, therefore, verse 16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, it's interesting. He talks about two things here. He talks about grace and mercy. First, he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Then he talks about finding grace. And I'm glad that the author used that word for grace two times in the same sentence. I'm really glad. You know why? Because there's two aspects of grace that's really important for us to understand about God's grace. When we talk about grace, one, we're talking about God's unmerited favor. The word for grace, that the Greeks use it as a word that meant to me that God's have favor on you was a greeting. They'd say grace to you or charis to you. That was the way they would greet each other. It was a way to say, may the gods have favor you. May the gods favor you. It's the way you greeted one another. So when Paul takes this takes the greeting and steals the word and begins to use it to explain Christian doctrine. It becomes to say, hey, God's given you this favor and he makes sure that we understand that it's a favor we don't deserve. So like you guys know the verses, right, in Ephesians chapter two where it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that's not of works lest any man should boast. He contrasts grace from works. Works would be, I'm doing these things, therefore God's in obligation to me. Grace being, there's nothing I can do to put God in obligation to me. So the grace or the favor that God gives us is completely unmerited. What's God's throne made of? Unmerited favor. (laughs) He sits on the throne of unmerited favor. In other words, the place where we approach God is based solely on unmerited favor. Nothing we can do to earn it or add to it. How do we approach God? Grace. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace. But also, listen, when he says, we will find grace to help, this, this kind of brings up the other aspect of grace, not just unmerited favor, but listen, divine enabling. So like you remember in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about his ministry as an apostle, he says that I am what I am by the grace of God. He says, I labored more than all the other apostles But it was not I who labored, but the grace of God in me. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm not better than anybody else. But the reason I've been so fruitful is because of the grace God gave me. God divinely enabled me to do this ministry he's called me to. Listen, grace is divine enabling. That's why when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, the word is charismata, or graces, you might say. Grace outworkings. You don't deserve the gifts that we get. God gives us gifts just because he's gracious. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Why did God call me to teach? Because I mumble and slur when I talk. I sound like a drunken person, no matter what time of day it is. 
So he chose me to teach so that he, people go, he's an idiot, but I understand the gospel now. Wow, God does exist, you know. That's what he does. He chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He gives us the gifts that he gives us, their graces, that he might be magnified, not us. It's his divine enabling. Now, this is important because, listen, we're talking about this dependence. God wants us to continually have a dependent heart towards him. But he also talks about mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy, listen, mercy is you not getting what you deserve. So we, each of us, we deserve God's judgment. Mercy is God doesn't give it to us. He doesn't give us his judgment. Now, if he says, come boldly to the throne of grace, undeserved favor, that you may obtain mercy, what does that mean? He means, you're gonna, the assumption is, you're going to be blowing it over and over again, and you're going to have to keep coming back and getting mercy. Over and over again. In the late 1980s, when I became a Christian, there was a Christian, a contemporary Christian band called the Altar Boys. I'm sure nobody here's ever heard of them. Just a kind of a sort of a neo-punk band that I used to listen to. Really cheesy. And they, the guy came out with a, uh, an album called Forever Mercy. And I'd been a Christian for maybe, I don't know, a year. And he comes out with this album, Forever Mercy, and the, the title song was Forever Mercy. And you can guess what the lyrics were, Forever Mercy, Forever Mercy. And I was so annoyed by that song. Because I was, at that time, I was in a place of really being a great Pharisee. I mean, I really thought I had this radical conversion experience and I had gone through some really heavy stuff and God had brought me through it and then I'm starting to walk the walk straight and I'm thinking, man, I'm a good Christian. And so all this forever mercy, I'm like, you know what, mercy, that's just a cop-out, man. How about forever obedience, man? I'm going to be radical for Jesus. Forget about this mercy stuff. What a fool. What a complete idiot. To think that I'm ever going to outgrow mercy. Actually, what I, what I, as I grow, I realize how much more I need mercy. And I rejoice that the Bible says, listen, that his mercies are what? You know, new every morning. And you know what else? The Bible says, Psalm 136. Read it. It says 36 times, 36 verses, his mercies endure forever. Mercy. You see, what we're talking about here is God saying, I want you to depend completely on me. I want your prayer life to reflect your complete dependence upon Jesus. Lord, there's only mercy because you're merciful, and there's abundant grace because of Jesus. So I'm going to come to you that way. In fact, I'm going to come to you boldly, it says. To come boldly, listen. It means to to come with a joyful confidence. It means that you come without reservation. I know my, my kids hate when I use analogies that have to do with them, so I'm trying not to name them so I don't embarrass them, but I, that's my life, I have five kids, man, my life's full. But when my kids were little, when they're just still toddlers, I remember saying things like, you know, don't jump on the bed. If you jump on the bed, you're going to fall off and crack your head. No more monkeys jump on the bed. You guys know the song, right? Don't jump on the bed, right? So you told them, don't jump on the bed. So what do they do? When dad's not looking, they jump on the bed. 
And what happens? They fall and they bump their head. And you know what they do? They come running, Dad! Or when it's really bad, they go, they can't even talk, you know? They don't hide in the bed. Oh, no, oh, no, I bumped my head, and now Dad's going to get me. They don't do that. They were disobedient, and that's why they got hurt, but guess where they run? Right into the arms of Daddy. Guys, listen, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is the picture, really, that the author paints, that we can come with that kind of confidence, because why? His throne is a throne of grace, and His grace is there to help, and His mercy endures forever. This is why the scripture says, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Now, it's also, though, this idea of coming boldly and the fact that he's beginning to unpack the ministry of the high priest and what that tells us about Jesus, it does testify, listen, that there should be some intentionality. It should continuously happen, pray without ceasing, but there should also be some intentionality. The psalmist says, evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Now, some people say that's just a Hebrewism for I'm praying all the time. Now, there's, there, that's good. It's good that we have an attitude where we know that we can approach God anytime. I love to pray when I'm in the car by myself because there's something about driving that doesn't, this is a bad confession, but it just doesn't arrest all my concentration. It should, but it doesn't. <laughs> and so what happens is I find myself kind of bored and I think this is a great time and I just, I'll sing to God, I'll praise God, I'll pray. When I was a youth worker in the States, uh, I had a lot of kids in our youth group, and I used to put their names on, on three-by-five cards, and they had them in my car, and I'd pull them out when I'd been at a stoplight and say, oh, yeah, I pray for that guy, and Lord, help this guy, and, oh, Lord, would you deal with that kid? He said, yeah, help that kid, <laughs> you know, and I'd be praying for them by name because I'd have the cards there, you know, and so I like to pray when I drive, and that's good, that's good, but if I'm only praying when I'm driving, if I'm only praying when there's a spare moment, and I'm not setting time aside Am I really appreciating what Christ has done for me so I can enter the presence of God? Now, let me say something, especially for you stay-at-home moms, okay? If you're not a stay-at-home mom and you have to work and uh, watch the kids, maybe even more so, but stay-at-home moms, when your kids are really small, I remember this with Sarah, I used to say to her when we were first buried, when we first started having the babies, honey, you've got to get time alone with God. You're not going to make it. You've got to go. And she's looking at me like, I know I need time alone with God. But it took me a long time to realize I'm going to have to block for her so she can get time alone with God. But then she had to learn, okay, when John blocks for me, in other words, he takes the kids, i got to go seek God. There had to be a real intentionality to it. Now, when I say to you guys, we give you a directory, you know, we encourage you to be in the directory so we can be praying for each other, you go, yeah, amen, I should really pray for the people in the church. And let's be honest, you never do it, do you? Why? You're not intentional. I'm not intentional. Unless we take the time to say, I'm going to pray to the Lord this way. See, I, I think we've made the mistake of thinking that discipline equals somehow unspirituality. Like if you're disciplined in your plan, well, there's no spontaneity in that, so the Holy Spirit can't possibly work. It's ridiculous. Jesus got up early. You know why? Because the, the apostles were demanding. Jesus, what about this? How's this work? And I don't understand this. Or even worse, yeah, we get it, Jesus. We have no idea what he's talking about all the time. So ministering to them, trying to get them to be able to take over his church was exhausting. So you know what he did? Got up really early and got alone with God. You got to be intentional. You got to be intentional. Can I give you a couple quick examples of how you can be intentional? Okay? If you, uh, 
If you don't live by yourself, in other words, either you're married or you have roommates, whatever the case might be, if you don't live by yourself, communicate with the other people who could understand what you're talking about, you know, adults. <laughs> communicate with other people in your house and, and, and be clear somehow that when, you're, when you're, you're having time just alone with God. You know why? He says, I'll leave you alone. Do that. I mean, my kids know that in the morning when I'm downstairs reading my Bible, that's my time. And so for the most part, they try to be really respectful of that. Sometimes they'll come down with their Bibles and they'll, they'll have their time there in the same room. That's cool. That's good. But they recognize, they, they, they see that, I think. They, they're respectful of that. We need to do that for each other in our homes. So, so do that. Make sure that, you know, I'm not saying be a Pharisee and go, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm seeking God now. Shh, can you please be quiet? I'm just, you know, like being clear that, you know, just saying, look, I'm going to get some alone time. Get some time with God. If you're in a place where you can't sneak away that easy because of the household, do that. Be intentional. It might be for 15 minutes, some weird part of the day, but do it. It might have to be when all the kids go to bed, but do it. It might have to be really early, but do it. Set aside time and say, God, I want to pray all the time, but I also want to have time where I'm just praying with you. Also, how about this? Ready for a shameless plug? Commit to a small group. You know, there's not a small group that we have that doesn't involve prayer. In fact, I think it was, Mike was telling me about his, their small group that they, you know, we have, I do this Bible study. I'm like, how's it going with the Bible study sheets, Mike? He's like, oh, they're good. We use them sometimes if we get to it. <laughs> we really want to pray for each other. I think, well, amen, do that. That's good. We have a Friday morning prayer meeting. I don't know if you know, but we have a Sunday morning prayer meeting. Pick a small group. There's women's meetings, there's men's meetings. Pick a small group and say, I want to come and seek God with these people. Not say prayers, not be religious. Seek the throne of grace. If you're married, pray with your spouse. You say, but my spouse isn't a believer. Pray for him. Some of you wise might be thinking, but isn't my husband supposed to lead that and he never takes the initiative? You know what? I used to get frustrated at Sarah when she takes the initiative. I'm supposed to lead the house. It's supposed to be me. Basically, I was just ashamed that I didn't think of it first. And now I've come to be so thankful that I have a wife who wants to pray. And sometimes when I'm thinking and strategizing and worrying, she's like, maybe we should pray. Oh, yeah, 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 let's pray. Pray together. One of the things that I wish I wouldn't have fizzled out on, I'm just really not good at doing this very often, is I stopped praying over my kids before we went to bed, because they're older, and I kind of felt, well, they're kind of older, this, this, I think this is stupid, I wish I would never stop doing that, because now when I do do it, occasionally I feel awkward, they probably don't care, they're probably happy that I do it, but I'll do it, pray for your kids, take the time to pray over your kids out loud if they will not freak out over it, pray, what do we mean by prayer? Quickly, let me finish this. I've gone too long as it is. You guys have all heard this, I'm sure. How many of you guys have heard the acronym ACTS for prayer? Anybody heard that? A-C-T-S-X? Oh, maybe not many. Okay, good. This might be new for you. Okay, good. It's a really well-known acronym. It's a great way to look at about how we should approach God in prayer. A stands for this, adoration. A stands for adoration. What do we mean by adoration? To ad adoration means to adore. It's the act of adoring something. Okay? Prayer is worship. Do you realize that? 
Prayer is declaring the worth of God. God, you are worthy of my attention and trust. Prayer is worship. Also, what we call worship, I sing in songs at the beginning of the service, worship is just prayer set the music. Let me, let me say something to you. When we're singing songs to God, okay, if you can't sing that song in faith, that's a good place to repent. And let me that in a harsh way. I mean in a serious way. It's a good way to say, God, I'm not feeling this. I don't, I don't, do I believe this? Forgive me. I should believe this about you. And then you know what? The, as the Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. Or in this case, sing until you sing. Sing until the melody comes from your heart. Do you know why I close my eyes and raise my hands? It's not because I think it's the right religious thing to do or I want to impress any of you guys. No offense, but I could care less if you're impressed. Hopefully you don't even really notice me anyway. I do that because it helps me to go, don't think about all these people. Don't think about the sermon you're about to preach. Think about Jesus who's worthy. Now I am thinking about you guys in the sense that I want to be a good example of someone who's really worshiping. So I'm saying, God, let me do this from the heart and not just an outward form. But that's why I do that. It helps me concentrate. If it doesn't help you concentrate, don't do it. But if it helps you concentrate, do it. It's a biblical thing to do. But prayer is worship. It's meant us to be saying, God, you are worthy of our attention and you're worthy of our trust. This is why we sing to God. This is why we sing to God often enthusiastically. God's worthy of our enthusiasm. You know the word enthusiasm means in God? In I-N, in, thu, it's like theos, ism, the act of being in God. That's what enthusiasm, that's where the word comes from. Yeah, you, you'll cheer for your football team or your band. Why not cheer for Jesus? I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about if you're not getting really emotional, you're not into it. That's not what I'm talking about because the emotion should be compared to the song and the truth of the song as well. But I am talking about saying, God, you're worthy of my affection. I gush over my family. Sometimes I gush over you guys. How much more should I gush over God? Adoration. The psalmist says this quickly. I've got to go fast. I'm taking too much time. The psalmist says, Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For what reason? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says, give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord and the beauty of his holiness. If there's something in your life that's more attractive to you than Jesus, it's also a good place to repent. And we all have those things. Our heart makes those things. You get rid of one idol, a new one crops out of your heart. This is how we are. But keep knocking those things down and saying, Lord, you are worthy of my praise, of my adoration. Acts, adoration, confession. As we said, confession is saying the same thing God says about our sin. Now that means this. We say, God, this sin is as serious as you say it is. So we tend to sort of level off sins, and certainly there are certain acts that we would do that would be more destructive and therefore would have a stricter punishment. But any disobedience to God is heinous. And one of the things that God's teaching me to do is to hate sin. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And I'm praying that God teach me to hate this particular sin. I'm confessing to you, I admit it is sin, but I don't hate it. Teach me to hate it. 
Because that's what I want to confess. I hate this sin. I don't want to do this sin anymore. But also, listen, confessing also means saying, but I also confess, God, Christ died for that sin. That sin's been forgiven. That sin's been washed away. Confession is that. Listen, this is why the proverb says, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. This is one of the most, I think, underutilized aspects of prayer. We are so slow to give thanks. It's amazing. Uh, what happened? I'm trying to remember what it was. There was well, I don't know what it was, situation. Someone... Um, We've been praying for a new video camera. And so uh, we were praying for that, and someone approached me and basically said to me the other day, hey, we had a discussion. I decided I got you a video camera. I'm like, oh, oh thanks. That was, that's great. Thank you. And I forgot that actually we prayed for that as well. No, not, I am really thankful for the person who got the video camera. No, I'm not taking that away from them. But the thing is, is we asked God, and God put that on someone's heart, and they did it. I'm not even sure how they got it, but they got it. Thank you, God. <laughs> Guys, listen, thanklessness, listen, is one of the things that characterizes the lost, lost humanity, unbelieving humanity. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans. Again, I'm reading from the NLT. He says, yes, mankind knew God exists, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. That's the history of mankind. Oh, yeah, God's there, but what has he done for me? Well, he'll tell you what he's done for you because James says this, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights of whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What he's done for you is every good thing. Every good relationship in your life is because God is good. Every good provision material in your life is because God is good. Every hope that you have is because God is good. He's worthy to be thanked. This is what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know how you learn to be content? You give thanks now. God, if you do this thing for me, I'll be really thankful. How about being thankful right now? You know what we can be thankful as Jesus followers right now? Because he's promised us all things work together for our good. That's what he says. We can give thanks right now. You want to learn to be content in your circumstances? Bad relationships, bad job, whatever the circumstances are? Give thanks for where you're at and see what God does in your heart. And lastly, supplication. Fancy word that means ask. <laughs> ask. We're so slow to ask. I think what happens is, as we begin to adore the Lord and conf we, we confess our sins and we learn to be thankful, we kind of almost feel guilty about asking. We go to the other end of the pendulum, you know, away from the kind of prosperity stuff. We think, oh, no, no, God will give me whatever he wants to give me. You know, God wants us to ask. And not just for us, for one another. You know, I was really moved today by Garth and Lisa's situation with their little son, Eddie. It's a, it's a difficult situation. Really difficult. And I was moved because... I wanted just to say, well, okay, we're praying that you can endure, we're praying. And I want to I ask God to intervene, that he gets healed either immediately or at least sooner, and that they have some great endurance because it's a really tough situation. I want to ask the God who's willing. 
advocate for them. Because this is what God wants us to do. I have to say, I wonder if what holds us back from being more fruitful, and I give thanks for the fruit that we are bearing as a church, but what holds us back maybe is we're just not asking. I have to say, if 120 people show up to a Sunday morning, that doesn't necessarily prove that Jesus is popular here. It might prove you just like the church. But when four people show up to prayer meetings, I wonder how popular is Jesus in our church. We have to beg and control people to actually pray. How popular is Jesus? How, how much do we trust him? How much do we want and see him do? God wants to show himself through answering our prayers. Ask. Ask.